Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. This is Declan Garvey, editor of the Morning Dispatch, and we've got a heavier topic today. We're going to talk about the opioid crisis. Nearly 110,000 Americans died of drug overdoses last year, up 15% from the year before. And about two-thirds of those deaths were attributed to synthetic opioids, mainly fentanyl. Fentanyl has been around for decades and has many legitimate uses. Cancer patients, for example, are often prescribed patches to manage their pain. But something has shifted in the past decade, with illicit fentanyl use skyrocketing and bringing overdose deaths with it. Our guest today has a better grasp on the size and scope of this issue than just about anyone. David Lucky is a retired Marine Corps officer and senior researcher at the RAND Corporation, and spent most of last year working for the congressionally created Commission on Combating Synthetic Opioid Trafficking and writing their final report, which was released earlier this year. so much for joining us. I want to start by running through uh, some numbers that I have written down here. So 107,622. That's the number of drug overdose deaths uh, in the United States last year, according to the CDC. And that was up 15% from 2020. Uh, 71,238. That's how many of those deaths were attributed to synthetic opioids. Um, And then 50. That's how many times more powerful Fentanyl, one of those synthetic opioids, can can be than heroin. These synthetic opioids were invented decades ago and, and obviously have plenty of legitimate uses, cancer treatments, things like that, pain management. Um, but they've really only become this big of a problem, particularly relative to heroin and 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 other drugs over the past decade or so. So kind of in, in your view, what's changed? What's, what's driven that stark rise that we've seen? Fentanyl and the other uh, fentanyl analogs, the other illegally produced synthetic opioids, as you mentioned, uh, fentanyl has been around uh, for legal uses for decades. Um, what we're seeing now is a 100-year displacement that took place when heroin displaced morphine about a hundred years ago, we're seeing now fentanyl displacing heroin. So this is one of those one in a hundred year uh, events. And the reasons are multifold. Uh, the ease of production, the low cost of production, the incredibly more powerful substance. So it takes far less of it to get uh, a similar type experience for the end user. Uh, the multi-substance, the polysubstance issue of mixing fentanyl with other illegal substances, uh, the counterfeit tableting, uh, all of these and more are the reasons for uh, this novel uh, transformation that fentanyl is having in our illeg- illegal drug marketplace. You know, you, you mentioned some of the changes in, in terms of ease of manufacturing and other reasons why this is growing. Are there demand side pressures as well? Is this something that in your research you found users prefer it over heroin? Is it a different kind of high um, or is its growth primarily because of the ease of production and, and transportation? Yeah, that's a great question. I think uh, both uh, there is uh, both some group of users who might prefer it. And I would also suspect some group of users who don't prefer it uh, over heroin. Um, 
One aspect, again, that's critical here is the polysubstance use and mixing fentanyl with heroin, uh, mixing fentanyl with methamphetamines, mixing fentanyl with cocaine. We've even seen fentanyl sprinkled on marijuana. Uh, And so this is another critical element. Um, It's not just the strength of fentanyl over heroin, uh, 25 to 50 times more powerful than morphine, but also the ease of of mixing um, fentanyl with other uh, illegal drugs. Right. And could you talk a little bit more about that 50 times more powerful figure? Kind of what does that actually mean in practice? How does that, you know, in terms of dosages and uh, the likelihood of overdosing, uh, why, why is it that fentanyl is so much more powerful than heroin? Yeah, the chemical synthesis... Um, pure fentanyl. It's produced in a chemical synthesis as opposed to heroin that's produced uh, from uh, a natural substance, grown poppies, and then uh, produced into heroin. Uh, And the chemical synthesis uh, allows for the greater strength of the um, aspect that fentanyl has on the the receptors in the brain. Uh, We're also seeing other synthetic um, uh, illegal synthetic opioids such as carfentanil, one example, which is 100 times stronger than fentanyl, which is already 25 to 50 strong, times stronger than morphine. You talked about how, you know, the, one of the biggest issues with this drug and, and one of the most tragic aspects of this drug is that, you know, it comes in many different forms as a powder, as pills. Many people who overdose on it don't even know they were taking it. Since we've written about this, I've heard from several dispatch members who've been touched by this personally. You know, the Wall Street Journal recently reported on three young people in New York City who who died after buying cocaine laced with fentanyl. Similar things have happened with heroin, Xanax, Adderall, Oxycontin, all these other drugs. You mentioned marijuana. Why is it that that dealers or producers would want to mix their drugs with a substance that's so much more likely to kill their buyers? What's What's in it for them? I, I would suggest that uh, the dealers are uh, very smart business people, and and the dealers, both at the wholesale and retail level, are not out to kill their buyers. Um, I suggest that's a horrible offshoot uh, of of the, the the business they're in. Um, mixing uh, takes place, I would suggest, um, because some users. Um, find the, the high uh, preferable. Um, and by mixing fentanyl with other non-opiate substances, now you're increasing the, f- the number of folks buying and, and potentially being uh, addicted. We've talked a little bit about the demand side of, of this issue and kind of how big of a problem that is uh, in, in terms of preventing these overdose deaths. To move a little bit to the, to the supply side, you know, obviously, because it's so much more potent, you need so much less of it. One of the statistics that you cited in, in your recent report that, that we can get to is it takes three to five metric tons of fentanyl to satisfy U.S. demand for an entire year. That's compared to 47 metric tons for heroin and 145 metric tons for cocaine. It's also, you know, easier to make something in a lab and obscure that than it is to, you know, have these massive poppy fields and then eventually get it across the border. So, you know, are, are there other 
aspects to the supply side, um, the production of this, the importation of this, that that make this more difficult to to stop and and to keep it from entering the country? Yeah, that's a, a great question. Absolutely. Uh, the precursor chemicals that are used to produce fentanyl in many cases are legal substances with legal purposes. Uh, many of them are regulated, uh, but they are legal substances. And being that the chemical synthesis is so simple, now what we're seeing is not only precursor chemicals being used to produce fentanyl, but pre-precursor chemicals being used to produce the precursor chemicals that then go to produce the end product. And and these pre-precursor chemicals are even more plentiful and you know, less regulated. Can you tell me a little bit about this commission that, that you were a part of, got put together, how you ended up on the commission and kind of what that, that process was like? The commission uh, was established by Congress uh, and signed into law by the president in December of 2019. It was signed, uh, it was drafted into the 2020 National Defense Authorization Act. It was a bipartisan, bicameral, joint legislative executive branch commission. And what that means is that there were uh, U.S. senators from both parties, U.S. representatives from both parties, members of the executive branch of the federal government to include the departments of state, homeland security, defense, uh, and treasury, and then some independent agencies like the Drug Enforcement Administration, the Office of National Drug Control Policy, and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, and then four private citizens who were selected by um, the Speaker of the House, the Minority Leader of the House, and the Majority and Minority Leaders of the Senate um, for their expertise. Uh, for example, one of whom was a former a DEA administrator, another was a former member of uh, ONDCP, the Office of National Drug Control Policy. One was a current uh, director of a high-intensity drug trafficking area. So these were experts in the field. And so the, the reason for that bipartisan, bicameral and joint legislative executive branch uh, forming of the commission was to get the greatest amount of buy-in, the greatest amount of support, and the greatest amount of ability to implement uh, action items that were developed by the commission. Um, uh, the commission's goal was to develop consensus on a strategy to reduce the illegal flow of and overdose deaths from synthetic opioids. And, and RAND's Homeland Security and Operational Analysis Center uh, supported the commission from June of 2021 to February of 2022. We conducted the research and analysis uh, and, and drafted the report uh, on behalf of the commission. Uh, the commission itself, um, you know, on behalf of the commission, uh, you know, we interviewed um, U.S. government and other subject matter experts, uh, more than 60 of them. Um, we uh, supported presentations to the commission, uh, more than 40 presentations with multiple uh, folks in each presentation. And then there were various site visits that the commission and, and some of our researchers took uh, to places like the International Mail Facility at the JFK International Airport, um, the U.S. Embassy and, and Mexican government personnel in Mexico City uh, did a port of entry visit at uh, the port of entry in El Paso, Texas. Uh, reviewing uh, customs and border protection, border operations, uh, and then uh, a couple trips in California, one to the Air and Marine Operations Center uh, in Riverside, California, and one to a Haida high-intensity drug trafficking area and law enforcement coordination center in San Diego. Um, and the, re the research that we did was um, uh, reviewing data, uh, chemical synthesis and supply literature, 
uh, government, non-governmental reports and documents, uh, U.S. regulatory policies and international law and some intelligence documents. Uh, and then we did quantitative secondary data analysis on overdose deaths and illegal drug seizures. I can imagine, you know, spending that much time sifting through that data, hearing these anecdotes. One, it's heartbreaking. And two, you get a full grasp of the the scope of this problem that I think very, very few people in, in the country have. You know, every single one of these is uh, is hard for me to read. Yeah, it was difficult and, and yet critically important research to with the goal of preventing uh, deaths uh, from this poison. Uh, in fact, two of the commissioners ha- were personally affected um, by family members uh, from this problem. Uh, the levels of removal that folks have is, is I, I would suggest, largely misunderstood. It's, it's only a couple levels of removal. Either you know someone, you, you know someone who is directly affected or you know someone who knows someone else who is directly affected. Fentanyl and other illegal synthetic opioids, it's the largest killer of Americans aged 18 to 45. I need to repeat that. It's the largest killer of Americans aged 18 to 45. Numbers higher than COVID, gun violence, traffic accidents, uh, disease, any anything else. Uh, fentanyl uh, is the number one killer of of basically the future of this country. And if we don't um, pull on three main levers, you mentioned a couple of them, supply reduction, demand reduction, and harm reduction. If we don't do everything we can in each of these three areas, the numbers, as we've seen, are continuing to go up. I would suggest there is no single solution to this problem. There are only better and worse ways of attempting to resolve it, and and we need to make every effort in, in all these areas that we've discussed already and many, many more uh, to, re- to attempt to start uh, reducing uh, this number uh, of these tragic deaths. I want to talk about those three buckets that you mentioned, the demand reduction, supply reduction, and harm reduction. The report that you guys put out has five or, or, or so key suggestions or solutions, starting with harm reduction. What, what is it that the United States could be doing and federal policymakers could be doing that they're, they're not currently? Yeah, great question. Um, first of all, let me uh, discuss the uh, commission's five pillars uh, under which they bucketed the action items. The, the five pillars uh, the commission uh, put out are uh, policy coordination and implementation, supply reduction, demand reduction and public health, internal cooperation and research and monitoring. And the action items are, are bucketed underneath those five pillars uh, from the commission's report. Uh, I tend to simplify those into three um, uh, areas of reduction, supply, demand, and harm reduction. Uh, basically, uh, supply reduction uh, are things like enhanced interdiction efforts at uh, U.S. mail and express consignment facilities and bolstering the capabilities and capacity of domestic law enforcement to investigate distribution, uh, engaging private sector stakeholders to enhance control over chemicals, uh, targeting the distribution of synthetic opioids and the precursors advertised online. It was incredible in our research. We did uh, open web and dark web uh, surfing. And uh, not only can you find uh, synthetic opioids and the precursors in the dark web, but we, we found um, uh, these same substances being advertised on the open web. Um, also, uh, efforts uh, uh, to disrupt illicit financing uh, 
require intensification as well. On the supply side, the report and, and most of what I've read seems to point to Obviously, the cartels in Mexico as having an enormous role in, in smuggling this and then the ingredients coming from Asia, primarily uh, China. Is there a uh, aspect of domestic production of this, domestic manufacturing of, of these drugs, or is it primarily imported? And, and if so, how is that treated differently or how, how would that have a different solution? Yeah, fortunately, we haven't seen a large um, domestic production of this. Uh, the cost of production is so inexpensive that uh, the cartels are producing it, uh, you know, in Mexico and, and um, uh, distributing it through the current uh, illegal uh, drug supply chain networks primarily, but not exclusively across the Southwest border. Uh, once entering the United States, um, uh, then through again, the normal drug distribution networks within the United States. And that's one of the challenging aspects to this that in addition to all the other drugs uh, uh, that, um, you know, we're attempting to prevent, um, there are all the other, uh, you know, illicit uh, aspects of the supply chain, um, things like counterfeit goods and, and the like entering this country. And so that's one reason that makes this um, issue so challenging is, um, you know, uh, entering, uh, bringing the substance into the country, um, and then once it enters the country, moving freely throughout the country is is a difficult uh, supply chain to disrupt. The, what the report makes mention of uh, the importance of collaborating with these other countries that play a huge role in, in the supply chain here, China, India, Mexico. Um, what, if, if any, of that collaboration have you seen already happening? Are these governments amenable to to working with the United States on um, on reducing these the, the effects of these uh, drugs or or are they kind of um, willing to look the other way and and, and um, facing kind of issues cracking down at home yeah one aspect and you already touched on this Declan which was a very good point um, when we saw the resurgence of fentanyl uh, in 2014 2015, that fentanyl was entering the country, uh, extremely pure, pure fentanyl was being directly mailed from production facilities in China to the United States through um, international mail, U.S. Postal Service and express consignment carriers. Uh, in working with China, uh, the United States um, uh, got China to schedule fentanyl and that basically uh, reduced uh the production in Mexico um, extensively um, uh, to the point where um, the now the majority uh, almost exclusive fentanyl production is coming across the border from Mexico. And as you mentioned, uh, the production is done using precursor chemicals, primarily still produced in China, other countries as well, but primarily China. And, and so the next step here is now uh, working with uh, the Chinese government to reduce the production uh, and distribution of these precursor chemicals to the cartels in Mexico, primarily the Sinaloa and new generation cartels in Mexico, through things such as know your customers laws. Again, these these uh, precursor chemicals are legal chemicals. Uh, China, like many other nations, has a, a large chemical production uh, effort, and they're producing these precursor chemicals largely 
for legal purposes. Um, then there are some of these chemicals, though, that are being diverted or you know sold directly from these chemical production facilities in China to the cartels in Mexico um, uh, by uh, disrupting that flow. Uh, that's that's one element that we can uh, work on with the Chinese. Uh, additionally, the United States government working with the Mexican government, uh, tremendously important um, coordination, collabor- collaboration efforts are required um, um, with the Mexican government. Um, this has been ongoing for years. The you know, the, the the drug war in the United States started in the early 70s, 1972, 73. And um, uh, the production of illegal drugs, that production and distribution um, in Mexico and through Mexico has been taking place, you know, for decades. Uh, so that element of uh, our in, interaction with Mexico is not new. What's new, though, is the fact uh, the spike in overdose deaths caused by fentanyl and and um, again, these cartels are are very astute business people, and they're producing uh, they're producing uh, drugs that that uh, Americans are taking, and and they're they're changing the production and distribution mechanisms uh, to um, take advantage of uh, uh, of uh, Americans' uh, wants. One more, one more question, just on the transportation and and supply reduction, and then I think we should move to demand. Um, is you know, I think if you've seen Breaking Bad or any of these other Narcos other shows, you know, there's images of tons of cocaine in bags hidden in trucks, and you know, being taken across the border in you know under false pretenses. My understanding is that that's not how fentanyl gets in the country. I, there was a big bust uh, a, a couple of weeks ago at, I think, LAX airport where these pills were, were hidden inside candy boxes um, and people were trying to fly into the country with them. It's because it's much smaller, it's much more potent, it's easier to smuggle. Um, how does that affect, you know, border enforcement, um, uh, the ability to kind of snuff this stuff out as it tries to enter the country? Yeah, another terrific question. Uh, because fentanyl is a powder, uh, that makes it challenging in and of itself. Because fentanyl is being mixed with uh, other drugs and other substances, uh, that makes it uh, extremely challenging. Because of the potency and the small quantities involved, that adds to the challenge uh, in this issue. So it's it's because of all these issues and more that uh, create the novel challenge that we're seeing um, let me talk a bit about the um, counterfeit tablets. Um, you know, there is uh, the vast majority of Americans, you know, want to have no part in intravenous drug use uh, or, or, or smoking or, or snorting drugs. But America, by nature, is, a, is a accepting of taking pills. You know, Americans take prescription medication and, and vitamins and minerals and the like. Uh, and so taking a pill is not seen in the same light as these other forms of ingestion. And the cartels have capitalized on this effort, uh, along with the uh, transition away from legal uh, uh, drugs such as Oxycontin, Vicodin, uh, and the like. Um, that opened up a, 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 another aspect of the market that the cartels have taken advantage of. 
um, and and uh, folks in the United States who would have no, uh, you know, would never uh, inject intravenously uh, drugs into their system uh, are are taking uh, counterfeit uh, oxycotton, Vicodin, et cetera, tablets that are not oxycotton or Vicodin uh, and others, and you know they're. 99.9% inert substance and, you know, one-tenth of 1% one of, of active fentanyl. This is obviously a much bigger problem and, and you know, one that we're not going to suss out in, in this conversation today, but many of these overdose deaths have, you know, in recent years been labeled deaths of despair. There's a lot of societal factors pushing people to these drugs. But uh, the, the the report talks about specific public health interventions that would um, benefit or, or reduce the demand for not just you know fentanyl, but opioids and these drugs in general. So could you talk through a, a little bit of uh, what you found there? This uh, gets into somewhat of the demand reduction, but more into the harm reduction aspect of this uh, and, and, you know, there are um, Naxalone strips and, and other things that um, will prevent deaths in this country. There are still challenges with that. Uh, some folks uh, don't see the, the, the benefit or value uh, to those things. Uh, there are ways, other drug treatment therapy at reducing opioid use disorder, substance use disorder in folks has proven extremely efficacious in cost. Removing, you know, someone's dependence uh, through those means has shown to save between a $25,000 and $105,000 per person uh, for each person that is, is you know, their dependence uh, is removed. These other strategies which haven't gained strong favor uh, in some parts of the country are really effective and, and thus far proven to be some of the only uh, effective ways of doing this. And, and so, again, all three of these levers, supply reduction, demand reduction, and harm reduction are needed. And I suggest we need to to make inroads in all three of these areas if we're to get a handle on this this challenging problem. The testing strips that you talked about there, those are illegal in some states around the country. They're they're treated as, quote, drug paraphernalia. These are strips that you can, you know, put on your drugs and, and, and make sure uh, they're not laced with fentanyl. It would it would show up there and you can avoid disaster that way. What what are the, the arguments that you've seen that outlawing those is actually more beneficial than allowing them? And sure, you don't want to incentivize drug use, but if people are going to do it regardless of whether or not it's legal, it should be safe. Kind of how, how do you how have you navigated that that debate? Well, I think you just uh, simply outline the problem. Uh, there are some folks who would suggest that it does incentivize drug use. Therefore, the position is we don't want to incentivize drug use, so we don't want to provide the ways that folks can can use drugs. And that's in some elements of the country, that's how it's perceived. Well, I want to end this conversation kind of on a, a, a more interpersonal note. I'm sure that, uh, you know, given what you've studied and, and what you've worked on in your own personal life, you get asked this all the time, but there's, you know, millions of parents out there who, um, you know, you mentioned most of these deaths are occurring in 18 to 45 year olds. It's the leading cause of death uh, among that age group. Um, what, what do you, what's your message to parents if they want to talk to their kids um, about the dangers of, of fentanyl? What is the, 
you know, messages that work, what doesn't work, kind of how, how should we think about, you know, informing the, the public and especially these younger people that are, that are more at risk to, to this um, of the dangers that they're facing here? Yeah, that is, that is a terrific uh, question. Thank you for that. Um, first of all, I would suggest that parents have the conversation. Don't take anything for granted. Um, I've seen advertising campaigns throughout the country, such as one pill can kill. Uh, it, 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 this isn't uh, a, a death that you can, uh, these aren't deaths that can be surmounted. Um, you know, oh, we, we got through it, so we're okay. That might not be the case. Um, one use, uh, you know, is one too, men- is one too many. Um, specifically for some of the reasons that we've discussed today, that um, if if folks or or young people in this country, kids uh, in this country are using other substances, they might have no intention of taking fentanyl. In fact, there's a large population of folks in this country who died not knowing and not wanting to take fentanyl. And and I would suggest that that uh, the the youth population who's dying from this, I would suggest that's uh, a very great percentage of those of those uh, tragic uh, deaths. Uh, whether they were intending to take some other illicit substance or not knowing at all what they were taking, and and the the, the great challenge with fentanyl is is um, without tolerance, it takes even less than the tiny amount that it would take uh, for someone with tolerance to be killed. And so uh, for, for a, a young person of less weight, uh, the, the amount of fentanyl that it takes is, is far less. Um, uh, even for these experienced drug users who um, two milligrams of, of fentanyl might be one dose and three or four milligrams will kill you. And that's the equivalent of, you know, of a, a few grains of salt. Um, for someone without tolerance, it might be only one milligram or two milligrams of fentanyl that could kill. And, and that amount is, is like specks of dust. I mean, almost, you know, almost invisible to the naked eye. The, the, the quantity is so small because of the, the potency of this drug. Um, and so first have that conversation with your kids. Don't take anything for granted. Um, I, I mentioned the one pill can kill campaign. Uh, I've seen other um, advertising campaigns of, you know, be careful of all these drugs you're buying off the street because any of these drugs you're buying off the street could contain fentanyl, and it and the amount of fentanyl that will kill you is so small that um, that it, all these illicit substances bought off the street are dangerous. David, is is there anything else that that I didn't ask you about or or uh, that you think is important for for people to know here? Yeah, a couple points, Declan. Thank you so much. Um, the first is that. Um, this the the addictive characteristics of of fentanyl of these illegal synthetic opioids uh, fentanyl and, and fentanyl analogs is so powerful that it really reduces uh, our most basic human instinct of survival and and what do I mean by that when folks who are opiate or opioid users hear about uh, what are known as hot batches having killed someone they seek these hot batches out. That's how powerful the addictive characteristics uh, of this of this poison are uh, in reducing our most basic human instinct of survival. These hot batches are are 
extra powerful batches because of the the mixing of fentanyl in these poly drug substances uh, is never uniform uh, because the the amount the quantity of 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 fentanyl necessary is so small that you never get a uniform, truly uniform batch. And so some batches of this substance, when they make their way from the production, distribution, wholesale down to the retail and end user level, um, you get these batches that have maybe a little more fentanyl than they intended and other batches that have a little less. And the users of these substances, the, the opiate and opioid users uh, are seeking these batches out that have these higher percentages of fentanyl in them, even though they perhaps knew that a similar um, uh, portion of this batch has killed other people. Another point that I would uh, like to make is just on the, the number of deaths uh, alone in this. Um, you know, there are many things that kill Americans from, from uh, disease, uh, from car crashes, from gun violence, um, from war, from famine, from all these other elements. And, and when we think about the tragedy of, of war in this country, uh, and it is tragic, the number of deaths from, from war and combat operations in this country, uh, the number of deaths from overdose in the last couple decades surpassed the number of all Americans killed in war and combat operations in the history of our nation. That's how many people have died from this. So if Americans are looking at reducing deaths, uh, looking at fentanyl, uh, along with the other overdose from the other illegal substances as well, but primarily what we're seeing now is fentanyl drastically driving up these numbers of deaths. And if we can get a better handle on on uh, these deaths, then and then I think um, you know we can really help Americans. And one way that I look at this, uh, you know, on 9/11, uh, when when the two uh, planes crashed into the World Trade Towers, uh, and three to four thousand Americans were killed on that tragic day, um, you know. Uh, between one and 200 people are dying from this every day. And, and in a year, as you mentioned, Declan, uh, over 70,000 in the last year. And if we, if we can get even a modest handle on this problem, say 10%, uh, and in my line of work, uh, when looking at um, improving things based just on efficiencies, 10% is a number frequently used. 10% of 70,000 is 7,000 deaths. That's double the number who who died on 9/11 every year. Yeah, those are those are astounding figures. Um and you know, it's it really brings home the uh the importance of the work that you're doing, the the report that you guys commissioned and um and I'm really glad that we were able to have you here today to talk about it. So thank you uh David again for for being here. Yeah, thank you so much. We were honored to support the commission and and produce this work that uh with all hopes and intents, will save American lives.
And we'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms and it turn into a passive aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. 